Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Today on Repairing the World Tikkun Olam, Radical Justice or Conscientious Consequentialism with... Um, a dear uh, friend and teacher and colleague of mine, Rabbi William Friedman, who is a doctoral candidate in ancient Judaism at Harvard University, writing a dissertation on reasons for laws in the ancient Near East. He also has rabbinic ordination from Rabbi Daniel Landis, who is here today from Yashrut. We're so glad he's here to join us and was a co-god research fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute of North America. He has studied and taught at a wide variety of Jewish institutions, including Pardes, YCT, JTS, and Hebrew College. He lives in Chicago with his spouse, Rabbi Sarah Mohern, and two children where he is the rabbinic spouse, the Rebetzin of Base Lincoln, uh, welcoming college students and young adults for learning, service, and Jewish experiences. I have known um, Rabbi Friedman for um, almost 20 years. And he is um, as deep in uh, the world of philosophy and in Western thought as he is in halakha and Talmud and, and as he is in academia and is a true scholar and mensch. And it's an honor to uh, welcome all of our Valley Beit Midrash learners today to Rabbi Friedman and welcome him here as well. Thank you, Shmuley. It's, uh, it's truly really an honor um, to be here. It's an honor that uh, you invited me and a real pleasure to see you again. Um, it's also an honor that Rabbi Landis is here. Thank you for coming. Um, and uh, everybody else who's here, it's nice, uh, it's nice to virtually meet you. And hopefully someday we can meet in person. Um, so it's actually quite appropriate um, that, uh, that Shmuley and I are kind of reuniting for this session because we met um, 20, almost 20 years ago while we were both uh, staffing a summer program for Jewish high school students in Washington, D.C., focused on social justice, tikkun olam. Um, and so uh, both of us have gone on long journeys since then, but our commitments, I think, now and then um, are similar. And uh, it's really a pleasure and an honor to be able to share some thoughts um, about this topic of tikkun olam with you today. Let's talk about tikkun olam. It's everywhere. Um, it's everywhere in the Jewish world. And in fact, as we'll see shortly, it's everywhere even a little bit outside the Jewish world. Um, but what actually is tikkun olam is a big open question. And actually it's a source of a lot of fights and a lot of contestation between different Jewish groups. Um, so for a lot of liberal Jews, and that includes Jews in liberal modern orthodoxy, thanks to Shmuley um, and organizations that he has started over the years, um, there's a huge commitment to tikkun olam related causes. Um, and then in the liberal Jewish denominations, tikkun olam is either the center of their Jewish Jewish missions, um, or is one of the main pillars of their Jewish missions. Um, so uh, the term, the words tikkun olam are everywhere, um, and probably in part because it's become associated with some of these more liberal Jewish denominations, there's also been a backlash in our polarized age. There is always a backlash. Um, and the backlash has been from sort of the more centrist and right-wing elements of the Orthodox community, although not only them, um, to the idea that tikkun olam can encompass anything you want as long as it's a liberal cause. 
Um, and so there have been sort of like accusations that tikkun olam is insufficient um, as a basis for one's Judaism. Maybe it's a part of Judaism, um, but it should be a small part, um, just as it had been in the past. Um, and, uh, and they are dissatisfied with the idea that uh, tikkun olam um, is the basis of uh, a lot of liberal Jews' commitments. Um, so what I want to do today is actually look a little bit at the history of the term tikkun olam uh, to kind of share very briefly its evolution from a term in rabbinic legal texts of the second century um, to a term that has been used today even by such luminaries as Mr. Rogers. No matter what our particular job, especially in our world today, we all are called to be tikkun olam, repairers of creation. Thank you for whatever you do, wherever you are, to bring joy and light and hope and faith and pardon and love to your neighbor and to yourself. So there's no better calming presence than Mr. Rogers. Um, and I happened to see that scene when I was watching uh, one of the biopics about him. And, uh, and it just struck me. Why is Mr. Rogers talking about tikkun olam? <laughs> Where did he hear about it? How did a Presbyterian minister like find out about that term? Um, so I wanna start by doing a little bit of a history of the term of tikkun olam. And then I'm gonna talk a little bit about some of the critiques that have been leveled at it, not only from the right, but from actually internal to liberal Jewish communities. Um, some of the dissatisfactions that people have had with the term tikkun olam um, and what it is used to refer to. And also um, the sort of, as after, after we see the critiques, I wanna kind of offer a response to the critiques by returning to the earliest rabbinic sources and thinking about, is there a way that we could use tikkun olam as not a wedge to divide people, but actually as a process that could bring people together. Um, and I'm gonna argue that from the original uh, rabbinic sources, there's a way of thinking about and utilizing tikkun olam, um, not just as a slogan to, to use to refer to any cause we'd like, but actually it's a process of decision-making and deliberation um, that can, I hope, bring us together and help us make more thoughtful sophisticated choices in our advocacy. Okay, that's, that's the end. So if you wanna leave now, you can leave now, um, but that's, uh, that's the direction. So very sort of as briefly as I possibly can, um, a history of the term tikkun olam. Uh, if you have access to the sources, which I uh, were sent out before and I think are in the chat, um, you can look at source number one, an article uh, that was written in, uh, in about 2005 um, in response to things like Mr. Rogers using the term tikkun olam, where did it come from? Why is it, why is it so widespread? Um, and so there's basically four stages in its development. Stage one is it's a term that appeared in rabbinic texts from the early, uh, from the middle of the second century, uh, maybe, maybe even earlier, texts like the Mishnah, the formative text of rabbinic Judaism. Um, and it's used in those texts, as we'll see, in the context of legal discussions right, of like actual policies. The rabbis want to make a ruling and they make that ruling either on the basis of tikkun olam or tikkun olam is a justification that they use um, for having made that decision. 
okay? So it was a legal term. It was a term of art, if you will, right? And it, and it uh, may have stayed within the borders of the, uh, of the sort of rabbinic legal academy. Um, but then somehow it also ended up in the liturgy. So it's in the second paragraph of the Alenu prayer, um, right? Alenu l'shabeach l'adon hakol. I won't sing it because I have a terrible voice. Um, and in the second paragraph of that prayer, there's a phrase that appears, l'taken olam b'malchut shaddai, to establish or fix the world under the kingship of God, shaddai. Um, in that prayer, it seems to have an eschatological sense, sort of a messianic sense, the end of days, right? At the end of days, um, the world will be repaired under the kingship of God. And how will it be repaired? By wiping out idolatry um, and everybody worshiping God. So very non-universalistic, right? Very particularistic um, and, uh, and not particularly actionable, uh, at least under the conditions that Jews have lived in for the vast majority of our history, where we do not have the political power to coerce. Um, and maybe that's a good thing, maybe that's a bad thing, right? But we don't, we never have had really the power to, to coerce until the until the 20th century. And so this this prayer, this line in the prayer, doesn't have a lot of practical significance, right? It's something that people may have said liturgically, um, but it didn't, uh, it doesn't have a lot of bite, I would say. Um, the phrase then, tikkun olam, gets picked up by mystics, Kabbalists, um, in, uh, in sort of the 13th, 14th century. And they use it not to refer to olam hazeh, this world, but to olamot, the mystical, supernal worlds, right? If you've ever seen a spherot chart, right, of all those like circles and whatever, um, right, that's what they're talking about, right? God, sort of the Godhead shattered at some point. Um, and so we need to do tikkunim, we need to do repairs to get those worlds fixed up. But it's not about our world, it's about those worlds. And the way that we fix them is either by doing certain mitzvot or other mystical practices. Um, and again, right, totally taken out of the realm of sort of like, you know, basic normal human comprehension. Um, the term then gets picked up because of its mystical associations by Hasidim um, in early modernity, sort of 17th, 18th centuries. Um, and there the term gets re-psychologized. Um, and it becomes about olami, my olam, right? And fixing my internal olam. Um, and by fixing my internal olam, that's how I do this tikkun, right? Um, and so it's not about, it's not about, it's about human beings again, but it's, it's very personalized, right? It's about me. So it's a very far cry from the original rabbinic uses, which are about society and making law for the community, right? It becomes a term that's used about like, how can I repair myself? And it's always sort of been a marginal term, um, very specialized, uh, didn't get a lot of play, was not really central to much Jewish discourse um, outside of some of these mystical, uh, mystical and pietistic discourses um, until the 20th century. So in the early part of the 20th century, um, Zionist thinkers and activists picked up on this term of tikkun olam as, as a code for the project of establishing Jewish political sovereignty in Israel. Um, it wasn't super widespread either at that point, but there are there is evidence that it was used in that way. And then in the middle of the 20th century, it really made its debut on the American scene, um, where a number of different figures in uh, sort of American Jewish leadership are trying to figure out how are we going to focus American Judaism and American Jews on relevant aspects of Judaism. And one of the things they focused on were the, the sort of social justice aspects of Judaism, the, the aspects of Judaism that focus on 
helping the weak and the underprivileged. Um, and the term tikkun olam seemed ripe for use, um, right? We're repairing the world. And so we're gonna repair the world through doing all of these social actions. So what may have been referred to in other times as tzedek, justice, right? Or gemilut chasadim, right? Doing acts of kindness um, kind of got folded in under this rubric of tikkun olam. And through the 60s, 70s, and 80s, it kind of picked up steam um, and then became just sort of commonplace. And as we saw, so commonplace that it transcended the Jewish community um, such that Mr. Rogers could use it in addition to President Obama and other, and other politicians who love to use the term to appeal to Jewish audiences, um, uh, sometimes effectively and sometimes ineffectually. Um, didn't sound natural in Mr. Rogers' mouth. I'll just, that's how, that's how I felt about it. Um, so that's tikkun olam. Um, and the critiques that get leveled at tikkun olam um, when they're not sort of like bad faith um, kind of right-wing critiques that, well, just because the left uses it, um, you know, we don't like it. But rather there are, have been internal critiques of the focus on tikkun olam in liberal Jewish communities from those communities. So in 1986, a reform rabbi, Eugene Littman, wrote an article in which he looks at the original uses of tikkun olam, and he says, it seems to me that in the Talmud, tikkun olam means for the proper order of the Jewish community. That's a long way to the definition, build a better world, right? So his critique is basically like, it's inauthentic. We're using a term um, inauthentically, which, you know, it's not necessarily a fatal critique. Words change their meanings all the time, right? If the Kabbalists can adopt it from being about, you know, fixing up the Jewish community to fixing up God, um, it's not so crazy to, to adopt it to, to talk about social justice. Um, but there are, I think, more trenchant critiques. Um, and some of them are sort of political in the sense that liberal Jewish movements use tikkun olam to refer to everything. Um, and that means everything, both in terms of different actions, right? So working in a soup kitchen is tikkun olam and lobbying Congress for more just laws is tikkun olam. So that's a very wide range. Um, but in addition to that, um, because it sort of got its purchase in the liberal Jewish community, um, it, it kind of like took on the valences of kind of mainstream American liberalism um, to the point where a reform rabbi from Chicago, where I am located now, um, uh, Rabbi Arnold Jacob Wolf, uh, very, very left-wing, very progressive, very active. He wrote the following sentence. Our Jewish program, Tikkun Olam, looks pretty much like that of the ACLU or the Democratic Party. Um, and he meant that as a critique, um, right? So he was dissatisfied with the fact that Tikkun Olam became a term sort of devoid of any Jewish particularism and just kind of like subsumed under kind of mainstream center-left politics. Um, and so that's kind of, and that's coming from within the reform community, right? That's a critique from the inside. Um, and so what we see is that people are becoming dissatisfied with tikkun olam as an empty slogan word, right? Um, that if everything can be tikkun olam, then nothing is really tikkun olam, right? Where is the demand that it places on me? Um, and this point was made very nicely by um, one of my teachers from Pardes, Rabbi Dr. Levy Cooper. Um, who says the, the following, and uh, I gave this to you, I believe it's source number three. Um, 
So he says, blurring the definition of tikkun olam may entail a further cost. Using tikkun olam as a watchword for any action that purports to improve society may lend a fictitious stamp of Jewish approval to policies and projects that run counter to values that are deeply rooted in Jewish sources. Because a particular goal reflects a liberal democratic worldview does not mean that is necessarily a Jewish value. Instead of labeling a particular undertaking as tikkun olam, a sincere effort should be made to clarify how that enterprise is perceived in Jewish law and tradition and what is its relative weight. Um, so Rabbi, Rabbi Cooper's critique is similar to, to Rabbi Wolf's critique, um, which is to say that tikkun olam is the handmaiden of liberal politics rather than a source of, of a particular Jewish contribution to them. And I think his charge is actually a very important one, which is, um, we should actually make an effort to understand how the things we advocate for are deeply rooted in Jewish tradition and not just call them tikkun olam. But even under that critique, tikkun olam itself doesn't actually serve any educational function, right? It doesn't actually, you know, you're not getting anything from your tikkun olam bucks. Um, and so Rabbi Cooper basically says like, well, if you want to call it tikkun olam at the end of the process of thinking, does this value or does this piece of activism um, is it rooted in other Jewish sources? That's fine, right? But it's not actually gonna come out of tikkun olam. Um, there's a, a sort of different critique, which um, I think will bring us into the sources, which is another one of my teachers from Pardes, um, Rabbi Dr. Mish Hammer Kasoy, um, who ran the social justice program at Pardes for many, many years. Um, so she wrote an article about tikkun olam in which she points out that real tikkun olam, by which she means real rabbinic tikkun olam, is actually kind of disappointing because it's not about a radical transformative move for justice, but she says, and I believe this is source number four, the rabbis contend with the world in brutally realistic ways and they work toward equality through incremental steps. What she points out is the use of tikkun olam in rabbinic sources is often kind of disappointing insofar as the rabbis allow larger injustices to proceed even as they try to solve smaller aspects of those injustices. And that's very dissatisfying for modern people, right? Especially people who want to see large progressive changes because um, we don't want to just tinker, right? We actually want to make changes. Um, and so her sort of move is to say like, tikkun olam is actually a cautionary tale, right? It's a, it's a cautionary tale. It, 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 it involves a disillusionment with the possibility of radical social change, right? It's an admission that things, we can only tinker around the edges. Um, Whereas, you know, when liberal Jews use it, they want to use it to mean like big systemic critique. Um, so those are some of the critiques that have been labeled, that have been leveled at the term. It's inauthentic. It's identified solely with liberal politics. It doesn't actually come out of any Jewish text or sources or consideration. Um, and if it did, you would be disappointed with it because it would be much more modest. Tikkun olam would be much more modest than, uh, than, than it's sometimes used. What I want to do is actually look with you at some of those rabbinic texts. Um, and so now if you've got the source sheet in front of you, we're going to move to part two, rabbinic tikkun olam, a new understanding, toward a new understanding that starts on page three. Um, and my goal in looking at these texts with you is to think about how actually is tikkun olam being used in these texts? And is there a way of translating their usage of tikkun olam um, to our sort of contemporary Jewish discourse in a, in a more productive way, right? Than just it's, well, it's an empty slogan, right? Um, so let's take a look at some of these. So I'm on text number five, 
the Mishnah in Gitin. So just, just to sort of orient us historically and geographically, we're now in the second century in the land of Israel. The temple has been destroyed. The Romans are in charge, right? They're oppressing us. Um, and, uh, and the rabbis are hard at work preserving traditions and also coming up with new ones. Um, and so the text we're about to see actually is one of those examples where they, the rabbis preserve a conversation that they claim occurred a century earlier between two fundamental schools of Jewish legal thought, Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai, um, the house of Hillel and the house of Shammai. Um, we know nothing about these schools, by the way. Did, were they schools? What does it mean that they were a school? Did they actually exist? How many followers did they have? You know, what we don't know, we don't know anything factually except what the rabbis tell us about them and what they thought. And so they're sort of set up usually as foils for each other. So here's the case they're talking about. A Gentile who is half slave and half free, okay? So the, the setup is we're talking about um, someone who is not of Jewish ethnic origin, right? They're a Gentile. They are a slave of, a, of Jews, right? Of two or more Jews. Um, and, um, you know, this is the Roman Empire we're talking about, right? That not, is not fantasy. Slavery was real. Slavery, you know, especially, you know, especially among the upper classes was real. Um, and Jews had slaves. And even the Torah sets up the possibility of, uh, of slavery or indentured servitude, both for Jews and for non-Jews. Um, and so we're talking here about somebody who is not of Jewish origins, who was a slave of two um, different Jews. But now... One of, those, one of those masters freed the slave. So now the slave is in a very um, liminal state, which is just a fancy word that means the slave is like between statuses, right? He's neither fully a slave, nor is he fully free. And by the way, the other thing you need to know is that when a slave, a Canaanite slave, a non-Jewish slave gets freed, they become Jewish. It's like a, a sort of bizarre forced conversion process, um, which has its own ethical issues, right? But that's basically what's happening, right? So this person is now still half in his old status as a non-Jewish slave and half in his new status as a free Jewish person. And so he's stuck in a lot of ways, both pragmatically, right? He's, he's half owned by somebody and half a free person. So who does he work for? Right? How does he do his work? Right? What? 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 How do the How do the finances get worked out there? Right? How does he file his taxes? Um, and then also, like, how you know, how does he live his life? Is he obligated in Jewish commandments, or is he not obligated in Jewish commandments? Right? Is he obligated as a slave or as a free person? Right? There are a lot of practical difficulties with being in this status, and so the solution that the House of Hillel offer is this. A Gentile who is half slave and half free works for his master one day and for himself one day, according to the view of the House of Hillel. So the House of Hillel are basically like, you know what I care about? Economics, finances. I want to know how this person's labor is going to be divided because his master is owed 50% of his time, right? He owns him. And so the House of Hillel say, yeah, the way you work it out is you split the time. Now, it's not clear if one day, if they actually mean literally like, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, he switches off every day, or if you could do that week by week or month by month, right, it creates all sorts of practical problems, right? What if the slave wants to travel for work, right? It won't be the back the next day, right? It's not clear exactly how this was supposed to work practically, right? But Hillel at least is saying, the house of Hillel is saying, yeah, divide his time. 
So then their, their arch enemies, their opponents, the house of Shammai come back and say, hold on a second. You have set right his master, Tikantem et Rabo, but himself you have not set right et Atzmolo Tikantem, right? In other words, wonderful. You just gave a solution for the powerful party, the master, right, of half of this person to get his, to get his money. But you've done nothing for the slave, for the half slave, right? You've basically said he's trapped in his liminal state. And now the House of Shammai could have raised any number of issues, but they raise a very interesting one. They raise the issue of marriage and they say he cannot marry a maidservant and he cannot marry a free woman. And the idea here is that a, um, a Canaanite slave, a non-Jewish slave can marry other non-Jewish slaves, um, but cannot marry free, you know, full Israelite, free Israelite women. And a free Israelite man cannot marry a, a slave of non-Jewish origins, right? That's kind of the rabbinic um, way of dividing up those statuses, um, itself having all sorts of ethical implications that we can't get into today. Um, but the idea is he's stuck. He can never have a marriage partner. And so then they say, well, fine. And it's not clear whether this next word is supposed to be the house of Hillel's response, like basically saying, who cares? So let him just not get married, who cares? Or if it's the house of Shammai saying internal to themselves, well, what if we just said, fine, don't let him get married, right? It's not clear whether this is like an actual like back and forth attack response or whether it's like an internal, like I'm thinking, you know, they're thinking about it. Um, but when they, but whoever says it, right, this idea, well, maybe he just doesn't get married, right? The problem is that not getting married means he can't legitimately procreate. And wasn't the world created for, and this is my fancy schmancy translation of pru or vu, be fruitful and multiply, fructification and multiplication. As was said, not for naught did God create the world. To settle it, God created it, a verse from Isaiah. So the idea being that when you stick the slave in this liminal status, half slave, half free, he's stuck and cannot fulfill the basic conditions of God's creation, which is to make more people. He cannot legitimately procreate. Um, and so it's not 100% clear whether for Shammai this is an offense against the slave's human dignity, right? An offense against his like human... Um, right. It, it's, it's so basic to humanity to want to procreate that by preventing the slave from procreating, you're basically violating, you know, to use a, a modern expression, his human rights. <laughs> right. Or whether what, Sham, what, the, what the House of Shammai is saying is that there's a mitzvah to procreate and you're not letting the guy fulfill his mitzvah. Right. So is it about his his like dignity or is it about his religious obligation? Maybe both. Right. Maybe they are actually similar um, and, uh, and, and can be seen as two sides of the same coin. Um, so they give a solution. Ella, rather, because of tikkun ha'olam, our term, the court forces his master to make him free, and the now freed slave writes a document of indebtedness for half of his value, which he owes to the master. So the solution, actually, is not a one-sided pro-slave solution. Because if it was a one-sided pro-slave solution, then the House of Shammai would say, you force the remaining master to let him go free, and that's the end of things. But actually, you do force the master to let him go free, which is a small impingement, or maybe a large impingement, depending on your perspective, on the master's property rights. 
right? One of the rights of property is I get to do what I want with my property. How dare you force me to get rid of, to, to dispose of a piece of property, right? And remember, we're in a slave owning society where that is, that's the way that's, I'm using the terms of that society. Um, so he's being deprived on the one hand of his free, you know, free disposal of the slave. On the other hand, he's going to get his money back, right? The house of Shammai don't say that he loses his money. The slave, again, who's now free, um, forcibly freed, set, has, owes half of his value as a slave to that master. And there's an irony here, which is he's not in great economic straits himself, right? So how is he going to get the money back, right? It's very possible, actually, that he's going to fall back into debt slavery to the same person because he can't pay it back, right? But at least he'll be an Israelite debt slave who has more rights, um, including the right to marry and have children of his own. Okay, but what I want to point out here is that the House of Shammai don't, they take seriously the offense against the slave's dignity, whether that means his dignity to perform commandments or his dignity as a human being. And they come up with a solution that balances the interests of the two sides. In other words, it's not a one-sided solution where you just let the slave go and that's the end of things. But it's a solution that says, yes, his dignity is important. His ability to procreate is important, but we can't forget that the master is still owed money. So tikkun olam here, I wanna suggest is sort of like, it's an idea of, well, we need to set things right in a kind of a global fashion and setting things right in a global fashion means also the master and also the slave. And remember, at the beginning of their argument, the House of Shammai used the word tikkun both with respect to the master and with respect to the slave, right? You fixed his master, but you didn't fix him. So it actually seems like tikkun here has to involve both parties, right? And you could almost imagine tikkun olam, meaning, uh, in the later sort of like rabbinic phrase, kule alma, where it means not the whole world, but everybody involved in a debate, every party to a debate, sort of every party to this legal situation needs to have its tikkun. Everyone needs to be fixed in some fashion. Um, both the slave who gets set free and is therefore able to marry and procreate and the master who doesn't lose his investment entirely. Okay. So, you know, you could use Dr. Hammer-Kersoy's language of the, you know, the rabbis are conceding to a brutal reality, but I would actually rather use language of the House of Shammai are saying the solution to any sort of like social problem of this nature where someone is going to lose, right, a little bit is that we try and make everyone lose as little as possible and that everybody gets the fundamental thing they need. So yeah, the master loses some of his property rights, but he gets the money back. The slave gets freed to be a full free Jewish person, but he's saddled with some debt, right? And in that way, tikkun olam has, has sort of like balanced the scales, if you will, okay? Um, so that's my first argument in favor of tikkun olam as not about a one-sided moral solution, but as a, like a balancing of competing needs and values. Let's look at another example. We're skipping now. Um, you can, I give a lot of sources so that you can have something to read when you need to go to sleep at night. Um, so uh, we're going to skip now to example number two, which is source number 10 on the bottom of page four. Um, 
And here, this is also, quote unquote, a famous Mishnah, famous because I've heard of it, I guess. Um, and, uh, and it's about this idea of the prose bowl. So let me give you some background. The Torah says that every seven years, um, lenders cancel the loans that they gave to the debt to their debtors, right, to their to their borrowers, right. In other words, it's a it seems to be an attempt to prevent debt slavery, right. If you just let debts continue to accrue, um, you know, even in an interest free society, which the Torah was in theory at least, um, then you know eventually the the bill is going to come due, and if you can't pay it, then in a world where there's debt slavery, you are going to become a debt slave. But if you cancel debts periodically every seven years, then hopefully you'll free people from the fate of becoming a debt slave. Great. Here's a problem. Who's going to lend in the sixth year or the fifth year? No one who has been to, you know, an economics 101 course <laughs> is going to lend in those conditions. So the Torah knows about this. And if you want to see, you can look at source number 10. The Torah knows about this and its solution is pretty weak. It basically says, yeah, you're going to want to not lend in the fifth year or the sixth year. But if you don't lend, then I will curse you or the person will call out and you'll sin. And if you do lend, then I will bless you. So that works great if everybody in society is pious. But we're talking about people who are lenders here, not known to be the most pious people in society. Um, and in fact, in rabbinic, in the rabbinic period, they weren't lending because they were economically rational, right? Nobody was lending in the fifth and sixth years. And that was freezing up the credit markets. And that's a big problem for poor people because on the one hand, they're protected from debt slavery because their debts are being canceled. On the other hand, they're starving to death because they can't get any money to buy food. So that's pretty bad, right? And so Hillel felt the need to fix this situation. And he fixed this situation through the institution of something called a prosbul. So prosbul is not a Hebrew word, it's a Greek word. And it meant sort of like a, uh, a document that was deposited with the, the authorities, right? So, you know, I, I lend you money, I write it down, I get it signed, and then I deposit it at City Hall so there's a record, right? So nobody can say, oh, I didn't actually, you know, give you that much money or whatever. Nobody can deny it. It's like firmly established. So Hillel says, if you deposit your debts in such a fashion, then those debts are not canceled by the sabbatical year. In other words, Hillel has basically said, yeah, I'm giving up on the idea of debt cancellation because any debt can be put in a prose bowl and then deposited. And why? So now I'm going to read you text Mishnash um, V.E. 10.3. This is one of the things that Hillel the Elder established when he saw that the people were refraining from lending to each other, thereby violating that which was written in the Torah. Guard yourself, lest there be a base thought in your mind saying, well, the sabbatical year is drawing near and you are stingy with the poor brother and would not give him a loan. Right? So we saw that people weren't lending. And so he established the prose bowl. In other words, he balanced between the needs of the poor and to some degree, the needs of the lenders. And he saw that the just solution of canceling debts was actually hurting the very people it was meant to help. And therefore he said, look, I've got to help the poor people by making sure there's some money available to them. And therefore I'm gonna create a mechanism whereby debts are not canceled. At the same time, right, that also helps the wealthy lender because the wealthy lender gets his money back, right? Whereas under the Torah system, he wouldn't. And that 
is called in the in a different Mishnah Tikkun HaOlam. Okay, it's not called in Mishnah Shvi'it Tikkun HaOlam, but it's called. It's summarized in Mishnah Gitin Tikkun HaOlam. So I think what happened here is that when the rabbis wanted to talk about a balancing act that was performed to sort of help both parties or balance between two bad outcomes, right? Either non-availability of credit or cancellation of loans, right? They call it tikkun haolam, right? Tikkun haolam is not the specific policy, but tikkun haolam is the process by which the policy was established, right? Hillel established this mechanism because he went through those deliberations about what should, um, what's going to be the best solution for these problems where I've got just competing forces pulling at each other. Okay? Great. That was example number two. Now I'm going to skip down actually to example number four. Um, so, so far we've seen examples where the needs of the two different parties, the weaker party and the stronger party, are balanced insofar as some benefit is accrued to the weak party and some benefit is accrued to the strong party, right? The poor get money, but have to pay it back, right? Um, the slave gets to be free, but has to pay his value back, okay? Sometimes tikkun olam is even worse than that. <laughs> so look at example number four, which is on page seven, um, sources number 16 and 17. This is also related to the sabbatical year. This is also related to, to um, cancellation. But there were two elements of the sabbatical year in the Torah. One is cancellation of debts, which we just talked about. And one is letting the land lie fallow, that you're not allowed to um, work the land in the seventh year. Um, and, uh, and everyone has access, free access, right? So if you've ever been in Israel in a sabbatical year, um, you know, if you're walking down the street and someone's, you know, orange tree is going over the side of the fence, legitimately, you can just pull off an orange and eat it, right? All produce is available um, for anybody's use in the sabbatical year, again, at least in theory. So what does the Torah say? Source number 16, six years you'll sow your land, right? You'll plant and collect its produce and then it's yours. You do whatever you want with it, right? Sell it, eat it, whatever. But the seventh, meaning the seventh year, you shall release it and abandon it. It seems like that's referring to the field. Release the field and abandon the field and the poor of your people shall eat. I think meaning so that the poor of your people can eat. And anything left goes to the animals, right? And you do it to your vineyard and your olive grove as well. Great. So the rabbis come along and they say, oh, you know, that's very interesting, this language of release and abandon. What does it mean? It means to, um, it means to counteract the following claim that somebody might make who owns a field. So now I'm in source number 17. So that the field owner doesn't say, oh, well, why did the Torah say to release and abandon fields in the seventh year? Wasn't it so the poor should eat its produce? Right. In other words, the, the field owner is saying, well, I know the purpose of the law, so I will gather his produce and distribute it to the poor. Right. I'm not going to, like, let them into my field. God forbid. Right. Violate trespassers. Right. I'll just collect the produce and give it to them. And won't that fulfill the Torah's purpose? To which the rabbis say, absolutely not. The Torah says in the seventh, you shall release. This teaches that the field owner must make breaches in the fences surrounding the field. In other words, there's something fundamental, not just about the poor getting the produce, but the poor actually having access to the owner's property, right? That the whole point of the, of the sabbatical release is actually not just about free eating, but free access. Everyone should get to experience what it's like when there's no property, right? It's radical. <laughs> and 
And that's why the rabbi said, we don't do it. But the sages fenced, that's the language in the text. And I think it's intentionally a wordplay, right? Fenced literally and figuratively. They fenced, i.e. they decreed that field owners need not breach the fences surrounding their fields because of tikkun ha'olam. So what's the tikkun ha'olam here? The tikkun ha'olam here is that we just can't expect people to give up on their property. We just can't expect it. Like if we try, we will fail. And not only will we fail, but nobody is gonna give away any of their produce either. If we let people feel like they still have control over their property, then maybe, maybe, maybe we can get them to be more generous about giving away that produce and experiencing the non-ownership of the produce, but we can't have non-owner, non we can't have them experience non-ownership of the land, right? So the rabbis they just give up. <laughs> they just give up on a fundamental, um, a fundamental message of the Torah, a fundamental thing that the Torah wanted to be part of the sabbatical year experience, they give up on that because of tikkun olam, right? Which doesn't feel like a tikkun, right? It feels like a concession. But the concession seems to be a concession to the reality that if we want to get anything, we're going to have to give up something. We can't get all the things that we would have wanted out of this sabbatical year um, out of this sabbatical year uh, institution that the Torah has, okay? So in this case, Tikkun HaOlam actually is, is, it's a balance, but it's a balance between nothing and a little bit of something, right? If we force them to tear down the fences, they won't do it at all, and they won't give away their produce. But if we let them give up their fences, maybe they'll give away some produce. And that's the Tikkun HaOlam, right? It's really a concession to the wealthy and the powerful, um, trying to get something when you, you know, you're faced with the possibility of getting nothing. Okay. Great. So um, I have a lot more examples, but also not a lot more time. So I'm gonna I'm gonna sort of overview for you. Um, I'm gonna overview for you two other examples, and then the rest of them again can be your bedtime reading. So if you go back to page six, um, sources example number three, sources fourteen and fifteen. So in sources fourteen and fifteen, uh, what gets talked about is um, if somebody is owed money, what kind of, you know, what do we pay them back from, right? What does the court enforce the payment from? So if somebody hurt somebody else or stole somebody else's property, we give, and you know, when they get caught and the court prosecutes them, they have to give back, um, you know, they have to pay the penalty from the best land that they have, the best quality land, the most productive land. If somebody defaults on a loan, then the court extracts from the defaulted borrower only from medium quality land of the, of the, of the defaulted borrower. So in source number 15, they, and, and it says because of tikkun olam. Something about that is tikkun olam, but we don't know what. So fortunately, the rabbis tell us explicitly. So in source number 15, they ask both questions. They say, why is it that... Um, why is it that damages are paid out of um, like that, you know, if, if you cause damage and then you have to pay back, um, it's taken out of your best quality land because th of thieves and robbers. So that the, each and every one, right, meaning each and every potential thief and robber would say, well, why am I going to bother stealing or robbing since tomorrow, if I'm caught, the court's going to take my land away, right? In other words, straight up deterrence, right? Tikkun olam is deterrence right? We, we try to figure out what's going to deter criminals the best. 
But then we get a much more interesting interaction around the question of defaulted borrowers, right? A defaulted borrower did nothing wrong necessarily, right? Sometimes you default because you just have a, a tremendously bad luck, right? Um, so why do defaulted borrowers only pay for medium quality land? And the answer given is because of deceivers, so that not a single person will set his eyes on his fellow's nice field or nice courtyard and lend him money secured by it, and then jump to collect the loan after the borrower spent the money, but before he's able to recoup the money, and then they take the land. In other words, you may have heard of a concept called predatory lending, right? We experienced a rash of it, <laughs> not just uh, slightly over 10 years ago at this point, right? Basically, people betting against their borrower so that they can take their stuff, right? Sounds pretty familiar, right? Banks betting against borrowers so they can take the houses at the end, right? So the rabbis are well aware that this is a problem. And so they set up the law to try to stop it. But then they say, well, hold on a second. If that's the problem, right? If the problem is predatory lenders, then why don't they assess the payments from, uh, defaulted, from defaulted borrowers, low quality land? Right? In other words, if you really want to turn people off from predatory lending, give them really a really crappy return, right? To which they say, in order not to fence the path before borrowers, such that a person would seek to borrow, but no one would be willing to lend to them, right? Which is similar, by the way, to the Hillel concern, right? The idea being that if I'm a, if I'm a lender and I know that if you default, I'm not going to get, I'm going to only get bad quality land back then I'm not really incentivized to lend at all. At least if I'm getting medium quality land, then there's some incentive, right? Some desire to do that. Um, but, um, but you know, you're sort of, uh, you're sort of stuck, right? At that point. So tikkun olam here, right? And this, so the decision to make it medium quality land is a decision called tikkun olam because once again, it balances the interests of the creditors and the, and the borrowers. The creditors need to know that if the borrower defaults, they're going to get something that's worth something, but not something that's going to make them engage in predatory practices. At the same time, if you protect borrowers by only making them pay back defaults from really bad land, then you're going to freeze up the credit markets, which is going to hurt the borrowers, right? It's going to hurt the poor again. So once again, the argument I'm trying to make is this evaluation, right? This attempt to balance between the competing forces and competing needs in society and come up with a solution that protects everybody enough, right? But no one party entirely, that's tikkun ha'olam. Tikkun ha'olam is not every liberal priority that you can come up with, right? But it is an integral part of Judaism because what it is, is a process of legal decision-making where you actually think through, okay, what are the competing forces here that I'm contending with? What is the solution that I would like? How do I get from the competing forces to the solution in a way that does some justice for everybody, especially the weakest party, but isn't so simple-minded that it causes problems for that weaker party down the road, right? And sometimes that means throwing a sop to the rich and powerful, which feels terrible, right? Try convincing somebody that tikkun olam involves sucking up to the wealthy and the powerful so that they'll at least throw some crumbs to the poor, right? So that's what happened in example number four. 
most of the other examples are not quite that far, right? Most of the other examples are like, okay, we'll try and come up with a sort of middle solution that will solve most of the problem, okay? So my suggestion is if we take that approach to tikkun olam, then we could maybe both make more sophisticated people's choices to label something as tikkun olam by saying, okay, well, did you think of like what the other possibilities are, right? Did you think of the other forces? Like what's gonna happen if you advocate for this, right? Is there a solution that would better balance between the competing forces here that we could legitimately call a Jewish tikkun olam sort, uh, uh, solution? And possibly, maybe this one's Pollyannish, but like some of the right-wing vilification and polarization around tikkun olam could maybe be mitigated if instead of tikkun olam being just an empty slogan for things, it was actually a like well thought out basis of conversation about how we make decisions, right? Then at least it could command some more respect, right? And get people to start thinking about like, oh, oh, that's also a value that I share. Oh, so maybe I need to incorporate that value also, right? And if they want to call that tikkun olam or not, I don't really care because what I really care about is getting people to a point where they're making better decisions that actually protect the weak, right? As opposed to setting the weak up for failure down the line. Thank you so much. This was wonderful for me. I mean, I've just been talking, so I have no idea how it is for you. Um, <laughs> but we still have five minutes and I'm happy to take um, comments either through the chat or... I don't know how you do it, Shmuley. You tell me, or Alex. Yeah, great. Yeah, great. And um, your, folks are welcome to write in the chat for sure. But also, if you'd like to unmute to raise a question, we would love to hear your your question as well. Okay. Um, Ethan Widoff writes: Is there any textual connectedness between the term Tikkun Olam and the covenant or Lagoyim, a light unto the nations? Great. That's a great question. Um, it, it presumes that or Lagoyim is a is a well rooted Jewish concept, also. <laughs> Which, um, which there's, uh, you know, there's been scholarship on that. Like, to what extent? To what extent was this idea of, of like, our behavior as Jews is designed to like show the world how to be great people? Um, you know, that that sort of also has like a history to it, similar to the Tikkun Olam history. Um, but you know, I, I think I think on the level of if we could show the world that we're making better decisions, or at least having better conversations around our decision making. That could not. That couldn't be anything else but Orlegoyim, right? That could. That could be. You know, instead of Mister Rogers just like throwing it out there in a PSA, right? If actually there was a substantive attempt to say, "Oh wow, the Jews are actually thinking through these issues in really good ways," um, that to me would be an Orlegoyim for sure. Great, great. Anyone else want to jump in? Hi, Eddie. I'm going to jump in. Hi. Great. Um, thank you so much for this presentation. Just out of curiosity, do you think that the the term Tikkun Olam should be used as a conversation starter rather than a conversation ender. Um, to give an example, thinking that we will solve all the issues in the world just by saying that we're commanded by tikkun olam. But it, it usually just ends there, right? But I think, in my personal belief, I think that that's just one of the tikkuns that we should focus on, thinking about the tikkun bai um, and, and looking at so much more. So in your opinion, do you think that this is a conversation starter or do you think that it, um, it's as it's so commonly used as a conversation ender? and a, like a tall, um, like um, a solution to everything. Right, yeah, I would, I would say, based on the argument I've been making, it's a conversation havoc, right? It's neither, it's neither a starter nor an ender, right? But actually it, it, is, the, it is the terms of the, it's, it, it's what guides 
it would it should be what guides the conversations that we have around how we address the problems that we're trying to fix, right? That and that at the end we can say, great, now that we've proceeded through this balancing act, that's tikkun olam, right? That's the way we're going to fix it. Um, you know, I didn't get a chance to look at it, but you might be interested in in the examples in section six, example number six, where you have actually debates about whether something should be called tikkun olam or tikkun of a specific thing, right? Um, and so, and what's interesting is, I think if you look at those, the, the places where they talk about tikkun of a specific thing, that's a place where actually the rabbis are willing to say, I'm going to, I'm going to prioritize fixing this thing over the broader ramifications of it, right? So you get like uh, a debate over like, is it okay to help um, prisoners flee, right? Can you help prisoners run away? And so Initially, they say, no, you can't help prisoners run away because of tikkun olam, right, which seems to mean something about, like, the future consequences on other prisoners. And Rabbi Gamliel says, no, 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 that, it's because of the prisoners themselves, right, that actually, like, we're not taking a, it's not a broad view issue, it's a local issue, right? It's just that if you help prisoners escape, then, like, they're going to try and track them down and may treat them more harshly, right? So in the end, in that example, you have the same policy, but there's a difference whether you think about that policy as tikkun olam, right? Is it about like a long-term, you know, we're going to try and like, uh, you know, if we don't help prisoners escape now, maybe they won't take more prisoners later or something like that, right? Or is it just like, no, no, we're just concerned about the effect on the prisoners right now, right? Or the idea that uh, if someone uses a stolen piece of wood to build a house, that they don't have to return the piece of wood, right? But actually just the monetary value of the wood. That's, that's a terrible precedent for theft in general, right? Because it just means you just, have to take a, just roll the dice, right? You know, you steal something, you use it. And if you get caught, fine, you pay it off, right? It was basically just like buying it from the store. But like, that just incentivizes theft, right? So it's a terrible policy, generally speaking. But when the beam is used in large structures that like, there's just no way that somebody who has pangs of guilt would return it, right? Then like, okay, they can pay the monetary value back, right? And that's not called tikkun olam. That's called takanat shavim, Right, we're trying to get people to repent and encourage them to repent, even though it's a bad policy overall. Right, so I, I think you know, I, I think it's actually very helpful to think through these examples as examples where, like, sometimes we do just care about tikkun of a particular party in a dispute, right? Even if the longer-term consequences may not be so great, right? But if we're going to talk about tikkun olam, then we need to invite more people into the conversation um, and more concerns into the conversation in order to try to come up with solutions that will be most beneficial to everybody involved, even if not 100% what any one party wants, right? That there's like a, a compromise that gets effected through a good tikkun olam conversation. But, and this is very important, I don't want anybody to come away thinking that I'm trying to advocate for some kind of like wishy-washy, like middle of the road, you know, bipartisan, we always compromise. No, 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 no. We don't give up on important values, right? But what we do is we realize important values through a, a, a conversation, a pragmatic conversation about what's the best way to get there and make sure those values get lived out, right? So it's not a compromise with evil. We don't make compromises with evil, right? But sometimes what we do is we make sometimes yucky compromises like in the fence case, right? And hopefully more often like compromises which say like, okay, I wish we could just get rid of slavery, but we can't. <laughs> right? It's too deeply embedded. That's a structural problem to fight in a different way, right? But for this individual, I'm going to try and, and fix the problem, right? Because what would happen if they said, the court forces the master to free the slave, but doesn't pay him back? 
not gonna listen. Who would listen to that, right? We gotta throw him some carrot to be able to get them to agree, right? We don't have unlimited power. We don't have authoritarian power, right? So, you know, this is, there's a question of realism, right? Of like, how much power do we actually have, right? And that will also determine the boundaries of these tikkun olam conversations. But I think, I think it's important to think of it as a conversation that's about realizing values, but not sort of like a simple-minded one, but one that's like more complex and that is trying to realize those values like over the course of time and not necessarily in this individual case, except when we do need to realize it in an individual case. But at least we're honest about we made a bad choice. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Rabbi Will Friedman. This was so rich uh, to learn with you. We covered so much in this time. Thank you all for joining us uh, so much. Next week, we're going to be learning with Rabbi Dr. Joshua Garraway, Inside the Mind of God, Plato, Christians, and Jews. You're welcome to join us for that and anything else coming up. Wishing everyone a good day in uh, North America and a great night in Israel. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember, that you can join our email list at valleybaitmadrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybaitmadrash.org donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.